Welcome to the 327th episode of the Jamie Delaney Plant-Based Wellness Podcast. My name is Jamie Delaney, and I'm your host. I'm a plant-based cardiologist and endurance athlete living in Southwest Florida. Welcome, and thank you for listening. Well, now I'm back to marathon training. Uh, CIM is the first week in December, so back on the roads, running on the roads, and on the bells are on hold for a while until January and February, so... All is well, back in action. Um, still swimming one day a week, um, just to kind of have a rest day, doing a couple days of strength training. Uh, not a whole lot, just enough to keep um, a little strength training going. It's good for my arms, upper body, as well as uh, mobility. So I'm keeping that going. So, so far, so good. Weather's starting to cool down in Florida a little bit, so the tower garden's up and running. We have some peppers and tomatoes and lettuce and Swiss chard growing. Got some beets in the raised bed and Swiss chard going, so things are looking up. A few papayas hanging on the trees, but uh, not much else tree action going on. This is the week before Thanksgiving, so um, we are heavy into eating season, so... We're going to talk a little bit about sugar today, actually a lot about sugar today, and I'll share with you a few things um, that we do for Thanksgiving, give you a couple ideas. Matter of fact, tonight I made a dish that I think would be a great dish for uh, Thanksgiving. Side dish, I did a spaghetti squash, cut it in half, baked it scooped out or, you know, scooped loose the the squash part. And then while I was doing that, I cut up some Swiss chard, chopped it up with some uh, portobello and uh, mataki mushrooms, sauteed that in a skillet, took some silken tofu, garlic, uh, and blended that in a blender and added that to the spinach or the um, Swiss chard and mushrooms. And then uh, kind of made a, you know, a similar to what I would do for my stuffed shells, a little allspice, black pepper, added that back to the spaghetti squash and baked it uh, for another 15 minutes. Delicious. Pretty side dish, probably posted on my Instagram account if you want to go over there and see it. Um, turned out good, tasted good, had a little filling left. You could stuff shells with that filling. You can do a lot of things with that filling, but spaghetti squash was a nice... Um, a nice change. Had so I had some uh, from my Misfits box. Um, I had Swiss chard and spaghetti squash. So I made something out of nothing, so so to speak. And easy cleanup. So that's even better on a weeknight. Didn't take very long. And there you go. We had a sweet potato on the side. So I was listening to a. Uh, series about cancer, and one of the things that was brought up right away was sugar, and sugar being so toxic, and sugar feeds cancer, and shouldn't I have sugar? And then they said, well, you know, it's really bad when you go to an oncologist's office because, you know, there's a candy sugar bowl on the candy, of course, or I'm sorry, sugar bowl on the table when you're checking in, or sugar after your chemo, and we all agree that that's not good. But I think when people say, sugar is bad and sugar feeds cancer, it's um, very, very confusing as far as what are you going to eat. If we tell you to eat plant-based and then you find out sugar is not good for you, 
plant-based nutrition is 80-85% carbohydrates. Carbohydrates are sugar. So what does that mean? And the reference given in this particular broadcast that I was listening to was an apple pie. So I'm going to start with an apple pie. If you take a pie crust, and I, you know, I kind of looked it looked it up, a nine-inch pie crust, and they uh, list, by the way, a serving size of a pie crust as being an eighth. Now, my grandmother used to make pies, and she used to cut a pie into four pieces. That would be two-eighths for people that haven't had um, fractions well. So that would be two pieces in the Delaney household. But one-eighth uh, is what we're going to base that crust on. It's 117 calories. 72 of those calories come from fat, meaning that 61% of a pie crust is fat. And then let's move on. Uh, typically, uh, there are about six apples in an apple pie and some sugars. So um, if you take um, apples at about 95 calories, it's predominantly carbohydrate, 25 grams of carbohydrate. There is 0.3 grams of fat in a gram apple and 0.5 grams of protein. Um, so for all of you people afraid of not getting enough protein, if you do eat fruit, you get about a half a gram to a gram of protein in every cup of fruit. I digress. Um, if you look at the apples and then we'll look at sugar, typically a three quarters a cup of sugar in this full fledged apple pie that I, I looked at online. I'm not advocating this apple pie. I'm just stating the facts for um, our, our calculation here. So if we go back up and do the math, we have 117 calories from the pie crust. We have 71 calories from the apples. This is in one-eighth of a piece. Uh, an eighth of the sugar, 67 calories total. Uh, one-eighth piece of pies, 255 calories per slice. 28% comes from fat. Remember that on Thanksgiving. 255 calories per slice of apple pie, 28% fat. So when he threw the apple pie and sugar under the bus as far as causing cancer, what happens to the fat? Does it play a role in all? We know that saturated fat is not good for cancer either. Um, I always like to go to the Twinkie uh, and bring that under, into uh, consideration. Twinkie is 99 calories, 39 um uh, Grams of that is 39% um, uh, fat, 56% carbohydrate. Twinkies also have red dye number 40, uh, which is made from a petroleum product. If you go down uh, the rabbit hole a little deeper, how much red dye number 40 should you have in a day? And the government has said that we can have 3.2 milligrams per pound of body weight. And if you look at the population who has, who gets the most red dye, that is children. So the um, two to five year olds get the highest amount of red dye, uh, about 0 0.0045 milligrams per pound. So they're within the range, supposedly. I don't know how they figured out uh, the average child, but. Uh, you know, there's also some uh, contaminants of benzidines and things like that. So, the, again, the metabolic waste associated with Twinkie is, is certainly there besides the sugar and the fat. So, clearly, those two examples, there are sugar and carbohydrate and a little protein. So, 
you know, does that where we're going to blame the sugar and and ignore the other things? Or are we going to look at the metabolic waste? Of, of course, simple sugars in soft drinks, um, simple sugars in candies, um, certainly inflammatory, uh, absorbed rather quickly. But again, the problem with the sugar, your body, your liver sees it as just a source of energy. The problem is what you're not eating and the, and the company that it keeps. So does sugar damage DNA um, as an etiology to get cancer? I don't think so because our body runs on sugar and our brain exclusively runs on sugar. So it seems to me that sugar is somewhat of a red herring in that you know we know that cancer cells don't use sugar appropriately. They take up tremendous amounts of sugar because they don't metabolize it all the way. So they're sugar hogs. There's a lot of waste products when cancer cells try to uh, metabolize sugar. So if you're doing a PET scan, yes, they take up a lot of sugar, mainly because they can't use it appropriately. But we can't really go to the conclusion that sugar actually causes DNA damage and causes cancer cells to grow uh, more so than anything else. So I propose that it's more of the metabolic damage that comes from the excessive metabolic waste that's associated with um, the extra things in particular products. So I don't, by any stretch of the imagination, want people to fear fruit or fear carbohydrates because they think that it causes sugar or fear grains for that matter if we look at that apple um you know we not only have sugar but we have fructose we have vitamin c we have fiber we have quercetin so there's a lot of other beneficial things that comes along with it and things that have fiber fruit that has the fiber along with it we uptake that sugar much less quickly so um you know, I think it, it can be very confusing when, you know, we look at macronutrients in isolation and throw them under the bus and then give an example when there's all these different things that are in there together with the sugar. On the other side of the fence, if we're taking in our glucose needs in the form of simple sugars like um, uh, Herman Bunser's uh, reference to the Hadza hunter-gatherer tribe where they, they might get 30% of their daily calories from honey. If our calories were to come from simple sugars predominantly, then we're missing the other nutrients as well. So again, like the apple, we want to have a mixture of good things and low on the metabolic waste. So if you look at the whole package, what, what is in there that you don't necessarily want? The other thing that I ran into this week was someone was on a weight loss program that came to the office and they were getting injections and the injections were B12, a B complex and methionine and eosinine and um, choline. And then they were placed on an eight to 900 calorie diet. And they were told they shouldn't eat pork, but ham was okay. They were told that they should do low fat, but you could have it once a day. 
So it was more about caloric restriction than nutrition. And certainly B vitamins, um, I, I guess, you know, you're giving a shot of B vitamins because you're not, you're eating such a low calorie diet that you're afraid perhaps that you're not getting uh, enough B vitamins. I know a lot of people are worried if you look at uh, people taking multivitamins, um, the B vitamins. Most people don't know what the B vitamins are, uh, but they just know that you could be low in them and so you should take a pill. So let's look at B vitamins for just a, a second. B1, thiamine, B2, riboflavin. If you looked on the back of your cereal box, you'll recognize these names. B3 is niacin. Uh, B5, panathenic acid, B6, pyroxidine, B7, biotin, B9, folate, 12, cobalamin. Um, so where would we get these vitamins on a plant-based diet? Well, it turns out that mushrooms uh, have a tremendous amount of B vitamins. Brown rice, grains have a tremendous amount of B vitamins. Uh, potatoes, tofu, uh, beans, vitamins, tomatoes, onions, sweet potatoes, broccoli, sunflower seeds, soybeans, bananas, strawberries, oats, um, very good sources of, of B vitamins. So it's, it's really hard eating a plant-based diet to not get the B vitamins. On the other hand, if you're eating simple sugars or you're eating a very low calorie diet, um, and trying to avoid carbohydrates, then you might be avoiding some of the, the B vitamins. But they were told they could eat ham, um, and ham specifically, not ham, not pork chops or, or whatever. And I asked why, and um, she said, well, it's, it's less fat. And so, you know, again, most people don't know where... Um, where their meat comes from when they're eating meat. Um, they just know it tastes good and, and they like it and maybe it's a, a good price, it's a good price um, on sale or something. But when you look at the saturated fat um, in pork, um, it ranges, uh, you know, around eight to uh, seven, 17% fat. And that's, you know, your range of ham to pork chops not uh, a traditional, actually beef or um, ham and pork tend to have lower fat than beef. Uh, pork seems to get thrown under the bus. I'm not advocating people eat pork or beef, but I'm just saying why we pick things for no apparent reason, I don't know. But I do know if you start um, looking at animal products, you can start to see the relationship uh, with humans. Typically animals are fed fast uh, to grow and, and they're fed certain products so that they grow a lot. And it's thought that if they have intramuscular fat as opposed to fat on the outside that it's better for you. Um, and, and so there was one reference that I looked up that you know to get an animal um, to have intramuscular fat, you need to feed them more often. Um, typically feed them uh, with more, more grain, such as corn, than to pasture, let them graze. Um, it's associated with more marbled, marble, marbled fat and more um, intramuscular fat. And it was interesting because, it, you know, again, it seems a lot like, 
humans, when we feed too often and too much, we start to get intramuscular fat and we start to get um, this metabolic disease process that we call diabetes. So I thought that was an interesting uh, comment. And a lot of these studies, I was like, well, okay, so let's look at the fat in beef. I went down that line. And, you know, again, it can be somewhere up upwards of um, 42% fat. Uh, so typically beef is somewhere uh, around that uh, range, 20 to 40%, depending on the cut. Um, calories, for instance, um, three ounces, which I know not many people eat three ounces of meat when they're eating it, 341 calories, 244 are from fat, 42%. That's a prime rib. That's what I used to eat for uh, Thanksgiving before I was plant-based. 83 milligrams of cholesterol. Most beef only have like 40 to 80 milligrams of cholesterol. Most animal products, 40 to 80 milligrams of cholesterol, with the exception of eggs that have 200 milligrams of cholesterol. So the reality of it is the meat is basically fat and protein. When you go to a restaurant, they ask you what kind of protein you want. They don't really talk about the fat. But some proponents of beef will say, well, there's saturated fat, which we know is not good for you, but there's also monounsaturated fat and polyunsaturated fat that may be protective in cancer cell growth. A um, little controversial, and we'll go into that a, a little bit later, but potentially not as bad as saturated fat. But again, we don't eat just animal fat. Most people are looking for the animal protein. Most people that come to see me say they need a source of protein. They need more protein. They need more energy. The restaurant asks you about your protein, not your, your fat. And we know that animal protein increases cellular growth, cancer cell growth to be exact. And it's most likely thought to be secondary to the type of amino acids that are associated with the animal proteins. And Dr. Colin Campbell uh, has done a large part of his research uh, over his career looking at animal protein versus plant protein and in, in the in the stimulation of animal protein, specifically casein in the uh, event of the um, liver tumors and breast cancer and prostate cancer, but protein in general. And it's thought... Um, and so it comes back to, well, what's the difference between animal protein and plant protein? Because I say you can get everything you need from plant protein and it's just as good. People say, well, you don't absorb plant, plant protein as well. Um, you can't build muscle as quickly with plant, pro uh, with plant protein as you can with animal protein. So therefore, it's inferior. On the other hand... Animals that we eat, such as cows, get their protein from plants. So how do they make it into a protein that's more bioavailable and better for us? Um, well, it turns out it's not, mainly because of the, the when we look at the essential amino acids. So we have nine essential amino acids. And then we have a term called complete protein. A complete protein is a protein that matches our skeletal muscle. So other mammals' skeletal muscle match our skeletal muscle most closely. So, for instance, a sirloin steak protein would have the same percentages of amino acids of the essential amino acids that, that our skeletal muscle have. So it's a complete protein. 
And turns out that's actually the problem, um, is those essential, those high concentrations of some of the essential amino acids, um, such as the ones that were sulfur groups, tend to generate acid uh, and acid metabolites, cause calcium to leach from the bones, um, also make the body more acidic, but also uh, stimulate cancer cell growth. So when we look at animal proteins, close to skeletal proteins in humans are the same percentages of those amino acids. We don't really want that. That increased growth is what actually stimulates the cancer cell growth. So the amino acids by themselves aren't carcinogens. In excessive amounts, they are just like essential extra glucose is not good for cancer cells either, single, uh, simple glucoses in excessive amounts, but it's a company they keep. So we never get animal protein by itself. There's always animal protein, and the most sought-after animal protein contains fat. So we get a combination. And when we get a combination, we get metabolic waste. So we get the cholesterol and we get whatever that animal has eaten or toxins it is, it is absorbed over the year or however long it takes before it goes to slaughter, which is stored in its fat and the fat is stored in its tissue. So we have metabolic waste. So the packaging of animal meat versus and animal protein is, and there's much more metabolic waste. So if we went back to our um, our, our, our beef um, example, you could look at a half a cup of pinto beans, 130 grams of, uh, six grams of protein, 100, 100 calories, a half a gram of fat. Um, and, and you can certainly, if you add three servings of that, you're going to get to the same, same amount, 390 calories and uh, 18 grams of protein, 1.5 grams of fat. So the company that the beans keep, as far as metabolic waste, is a lot less. We're able to use more of the bean than we are for good with less metabolic byproducts, with less trash to try to figure out what to do with than we would if we were just eating uh, animal products. So I hope that was a roundabout way of talking about, we don't really eat in isolation. It comes back to, um, we eat a combination of fat and protein, combination of carbohydrate and fat, combination of all three. And we look at, uh, you know, what gets us in the end is the energy density, how many calories are in that food product. So are we taking in more calories than we need, which causes the accumulation of fat, which increases our risk of inflammation and cancer? And do we have increased metabolic waste with what we're taking in? And we have to do something with that. Polyunsaturated fats, mono monounsaturated fats in and of themselves in a limited quantity might not be that toxic, but it's the company that they keep associated with increased caloric density, nine calories per gram for fat versus four calories per gram for carbohydrates. 
and the other associated metabolic waste that occur with that in the context. So we always, you know, when we study things, even even in plant-based nutrition uh, and, and dietetics, when we're trying to figure out what to eat, we don't want to be those people that um, don't look at the whole being, yet the first thing we do is try to break things down to understand it. And that's the most confusing part of nutrition is that we use things whole and we have to take everything that comes along with it. So we can't classify a particular macronutrient or micronutrient necessarily as good or bad. It's how does it react in the environment that it's that we take it in. So before I close on, you know, food and the company that is keeps, let's apply it to Thanksgiving dinner a little bit. Um, you know, it tends to be the day of overeating. People get together, people bring covered dishes. But when you're making food, if you're contributing to a covered dish, you don't have to make it with a lot of metabolic waste. You can make it plant-based. You know, we, we're going to do mashed potatoes with mushroom gravy, um, making the mashed potatoes with, um, you know, soy milk. Uh, adds a little protein to it, no extra additives. I do soy milk that has soybeans and water. It gives me a protection, anti-estrogen, phytoestrogen in soybeans. So I get a little protection from breast cancer in my mashed potatoes. I use golden potatoes. I can leave this in on and get a little bit more fiber in them. I'm going to use uh, a little bit of miso for flavoring instead of salt. Miso is a fermented soy base. Uh, soybean, a little bit of probiotic there. I can use less. I can get a little bit of a salty flavor without the excessive amounts of sodium. Mushrooms, instead of doing gravy from a turkey, and ex, you know, mushrooms have a multitude of B vitamins as well as anti-cancer properties. I try to eat mushrooms multiple times a week. Um, I just can't say enough about the, the health benefits of mushrooms, uh, even have a little bit of vitamin D in them. Having greens to make sure you have that. Again, the Swiss chard, spinach, collard greens, some sort of greens, broccoli. Um, and you can make it without. Um, and green beans are not a nitric oxide producing green for the most part. People get confused. Green beans are green beans. Uh, they are uh, white beans with green uh, picked early. Um, you can do a green bean casserole without doing the onions and cream of mushroom soup. You can do that with the mushroom gravy. Uh, you can do um, some dehydrated onions on top and make that dish much better. You can do pumpkin pie without the traditional crust. You can do an oat and date crust that makes that a little better. You can use silken tofu and the pumpkin to make the pumpkin uh, filling. A uh, little maple syrup instead of white table uh, sugar. Certainly sweet potatoes, cinnamon, nutmeg. They're very sweet in and of themselves. If you haven't bought organic sweet potatoes, if you haven't bought organic sweet potatoes, they're so much better than um, other potatoes. Try to get it organic as much as you can. I think the taste is so much better. Carrots, we do a carrot dog. Um, you can make, you can marinate those carrots and uh, roast them at the end and have that with beets even in that same marinade if you wanted to. Um, we do lima beans. Um, you know, instead of using a milk thickener, we do a tapioca, um, a tapioca starch and a, a little bit of soy milk to, to thicken them. Um, I'll make bread, sourdough bread. 
Uh, we'll do a lentil loaf, again, um, lentils uh, and vegetables. So we have a lot of hidden vegetables in, in that lentil loaf. So those are a, a few things. If you sign up for our newsletter, uh, you can have access to some of the things that we cook. And certainly if you go back on Instagram, you'll see our Thanksgiving. Um, we make stuffing balls that are in the cookbook. Uh, again, you can go to Amazon and get the cookbook. The stuffing balls are made with uh, bread, celery, leeks, um, and a little bit of miso. Obviously, we don't put them in a bird. Um, and so much, much more healthy, a lot less metabolic waste, don't feel bad, have a lot of energy. And you're actually eating things that make you feel good and protect you as opposed to turkey ends up having the tryptophan, methionine. Again, there's a lot of fat in turkey altogether, have a lot of metabolic waste. Um, the other thing that I didn't mention was cranberry sauce. Again, we're going to add the, the red and purple color polyphenols, resveratrol. Um, it increases the pH uh, of your urine, makes it very protective. We put oranges in that, walnuts, um, celery. So, you know, all in all, it's a really healthy meal. If you eat too much, you know, you're getting too many calories that day. But, um, you know, we try to hold back and, and kind of save it for that meal and then enjoy the leftovers for the rest of the weekend. Before I close up, I, you know, we talked about running and, um, you know, we did the swim run and I talked about that last week on the podcast and we're going to do the marathon in December. We have a 25 K in January and hopefully a 50 mile in February. And a lot of people say, you know, doesn't running, um, wear down your cart cartilage. And there was actually a study in sports medicine published, uh, on September 3rd, that looked at um, a bunch of different studies uh, and a meta-analysis using MRI to look at the effect of running on cartilage. And basically what happens is that when you run, run you, you kind of smash the cartilage out um, into the bone. Um, so if you take an MRI right after you run, you can see a little bit of decrease in the cartilage thickness, thickening. Um, and you're just like, well, okay, that might be bad. Um, but the reality of it is after you finish running, then the cartilage, just like the rest of your body starts to resorb water and expands back to normal. And even within an hour, that cartilage is back to normal. And then on top of that, even when somebody just starts to run after 10 weeks, you can see changes in the cartilage that it becomes more resilient and you can tolerate more load, more running, um, and it bounces back quicker and stronger. So not only, you know, the study concluded is running not bad for your joints, but it's actually good for your joints. And you can use it as a way to strengthen um, your, your, um, your joints. One of the more dramatic studies looked at uh, competitors in a trans-Europe foot race, 4,486K, which is about 2,787 miles, that went from Sicily to northern Scandinavia in 64 days. And the team followed these runners with portable MRIs and assessed them every 900K or so. And... 
um, they found not only did they not have cartilage damage, but they actually adapted during the race and got better. So, you know, I think when, you know, again, my colleagues in, in the hospital are always saying, you know, I can't run, my knees are bad, I used to run, but my knees are bad. Um, it's just um, not so. Um, it's more of the inflammation associated with what you're eating and the mechanics perhaps of how you're running, because if someone's overweight, they're probably their joints and mobility is not going to be as good and, and maybe more prone to injury. But the reality of it is get out and move your body and, and run. And it's, um, never too late. There have been other studies that looked at people even with joint replacements and that when you put, uh, stress on the bones around the joint replacement, you're actually generating um, uh, a stronger bone matrix that helps to keep that prosthetic joint in place. So no excuse for not getting out and doing the turkey trot. Uh, it's only going to make things better. If you haven't listened to my previous study with Katie, or st previous podcast with Katie Bowman, um, we talk a little bit about knees and joints there. But she, you know, she in in her assessment, and and we do it in our office as well now. Um, look at people's uh, how people stand, and I would encourage you to stand up right now, unless you're driving uh, or if you're running. You're already you know you can see how you stand when people stand way forward and lean forward over the front part of their foot at rest or, you know, when they're standing at the kitchen or whatever, um, because you lean forward, you tend to have to cause your quadriceps to contract. Those are the muscles in the front of your leg. And people tend to lock their knees. So if they fill their patella, um, it's locked in place and won't move. If you lean back with your knees over your ankles, uh, you can actually relax your quadriceps and you're balancing, you know, over your center of mass and you can relax the quadricep and that muscle lengthens and takes a lot of pressure off the knee and the patella moves freely. So sometimes it's not about how you move, it's how you're, you know, what you do when you're not moving. You know, when people are laying and sitting all curled up on a couch or, you know, depending on how your bed is and uh, your neck all curled up or you're on a computer with your head way forward, those stagnant changes that to our body when we're not really moving can cause more damage. And then we blame moving for the, for the reason for it. But it's in reality, it's what we do when we're not moving that leads to the, to the injury moving just sets it in progress process. So, um, again, a lot of times it's not really what's hurting, but what's above it or below it, uh, that, that may actually be the problem and, and how you're doing and what you're doing in the times that you're not moving. Um, so, um, you know, I've noticed it myself, um, you know, I'll have a, a, a niggle here or there and, uh, all of a sudden it'll go away. And it wasn't because I rested. It was more because I was moving and how I was moving that helped, helped me get, uh, my body realigned and, and more in tune. 
I also finally got rid of my pillow after the Katie Bowman episode and finally, you know, had enough nerve to try. And and I have to agree with her. She, you know, she had said the same thing that when she got rid of her pillow, um, you know, all of a sudden her neck felt much better and she had much more range of motion. And, and I made the excuse that, you know, I had gone down to a very small pillow and it was like not having any pillow at all, but yet it was more than what is, you know, without a pillow. And I, and I got to thinking about it and it's, you know, with my grandson, you know, babies don't use pillows. And when do you give a child a pillow? I really don't remember uh, when I gave my daughter a pillow. I, I assume it's when she went to a junior bed that you make a bed and you put a pillow. Um, we don't assess what size pillows we give children. Um, they just get a pillow, right? You just get a standard pillow, whatever you have around. And then um, as we become adults and, you know, we're, um, again, becoming more sedentary or our heads are a certain way, we start to have neck issues and then we start to blame our pillows and we need a better pillow. And hence my pillow and the best pillow. And, you know, you have all these different ads for people trying to find the perfect pillow. And it's almost universal to everybody. Everybody's trying to find the perfect pillow. And it's because it doesn't exist that our bodies were actually made. And so going without a pillow took me three or four days because it kind of felt weird. And I kind of kept thinking about my grandson, you know, it's like how his head would be. And Lo and behold, I started to have more range of motion in my neck and, and my neck didn't hurt when I got up and it feels very comfortable now not to have the pillow. So now they become decorations or maybe something to prop myself up if I'm going to read a little bit before I go to bed. But for the most part, I read, you know, sitting up like, you know, before I go to bed. So, um, you know, I encourage you to give it a shot to see if it actually helps. Um, again, posture during the most of the day affects what, you know, we, we, again, we attribute what's wrong right then and there, uh, as being the cause of effect. But, uh, sometimes we have to look back to see what the problem is. So I guess if I had to give this theme of this podcast is less is more, except when it comes to running, um, you know, the, the more you pound on, the more, the more you weight bear, the, the better you are. But, um, as far as nutrition goes, you know, the less metabolic waste you have with whatever you do, whatever you're eating is, is the best way to go. So I hope you have a very good Thanksgiving and keep it healthy. And you don't have to tell people exactly what's in your recipe. So make something good and plant-based that's healthy. And you know what? They're going to like it and they're not going to know it. So, you know, everybody doesn't have to know every ingredient. You surely don't know every ingredient that's in most products that you've eaten over the years, including that red dye 40 and 20 and yellow and all this other colors. So there's lots of things hidden uh, that's not good for you. It's okay to hide a few good things. Uh, it's, it's okay to hide things that are good for you. So thanks for listening, and I'll, I'll speak with you next week.